Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the Working Tools Podcast. We are talking today about Masons the Military again, part two. And also, we have an author with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, brethren all, welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation around Freemasonry. First, it's important to note that our opinions and thoughts are our own and do not reflect those of our Grand Lodge or respective craft or concordant bodies. Please connect with us and ask questions, either here on YouTube or on our Facebook page. We'd also appreciate a thumbs up and especially any comments on our videos. Welcome to the Working Tools Podcast. I'm David Colbeth, a Master Mason in Washington State. I'm joined today by Matt Apple, who is also a Master Mason in Washington State, and Steve Chung, who is a Master Mason, not just in British Columbia, but in the Great Valley of the... Kelowna. Kelowna. I always want to mess that up. <laughs> hey, we're also joined by our good friend, Colonel Retired Jonathan Davenport, likes just to call him JD and author, correct? Yes, sir. Of several books now. Uh, so we'll probably talk about that as well. But today, uh, focuses a little bit on Masons in the military. So right off the bat, who is the oldest Mason that was in the military? Anybody know? That's not really a true question, at least for the United States. Who, who, is our, who is our iconic military man that was a Mason? Well, I could say George Washington. He would, you would be right. Since he was not only general of the army, but eventually president and declined <laughs> to be king, all of which makes him a good guy in my book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yes, I would say that uh, Washington is probably our most iconic military mason, other than J.D., of course. I actually have, when I graduated from the war college, they gave me a tie, and it's uh, – it's when Washington went out to put down the Whiskey Rebellion. So the, the U.S. Army War College is in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And that is the fort that they rode out of to go put down the Whiskey Rebellion. And it's, there's an iconic painting, if you will, of him and his staff with their horses walking down the main street of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And that scene is what's on the tie. It's very cool. They didn't actually end up having to do anything, but... It was still a, one of those iconic moments of where he was actually as president and still commander in chief. He actually went out and was going to lead troops. Huh. Now, when they say put down the revolution, <laughs> was that actually put down or, or is that? <laughs> I have to say, if you go down Main Street in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, there are more establishments that serve some kind of alcohol than anything else. So maybe. Uh-huh. Yes, the true the true runners. <laughs> On a totally side note, my father in law actually is a, uh, a volunteer at the museum there. He he uh, moves documents around and photocopies things and that sort of stuff. Nice. Really into it. So. How long has he been there? Oh, he's lived out in that area all his life. He's volunteered there. Oh gosh, I don't know, six or eight years now. He, he retired from the army there as a warrant officer. Two thousand ten to two thousand twelve. Oh well. 
Yeah, there's probably nice. some overlap there. He was a he was a warrant officer in the military in the army, and he retired. Started doing that. Cool. So obviously his name's not Apple. What what's his last name? Uh, Prendergast. John Prendergast. I have met a John Prendergast. Ah. <laughs> uh oh. Nice. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, uh, what other uh, iconic military men are Masons that you know of, JD? I think one of the coolest ones that goes back to talking about Veterans Day and Armistice Day is our very first U.S. person on the ground in Europe. Um, first one to hit the, the shores of France was Black Jack Pershing. And Pershing, a Mason, <clears throat> um, has a couple of claims to fame. One was that he had just been serving in the Philippines uh, about a year before that. And then he was put into Mexico to go chase down a certain villain. And then it went immediately from that to uh, go into Europe and meet with the French, get them kind of back into the fight and to provide some landing places for U.S. forces that were going to get involved. So he was there, I want to say as early, it was late spring, early summer of 1917. He was promoted from captain to brigadier general. Huh. That is a huge jump for anyone yeah. who doesn't know. That is four <laughs> ranks at once. <clears throat> and in officer parlance, I was a captain for eight years and a major for seven and a lieutenant colonel for six. I mean, this guy went from captain to brigadier general. That's he, a jump even on a battlefield. Yeah. So it wasn't until early 1918 that we actually put troops on the ground. And 18 months later, the war ended. So, and it was basically, you could go to any of the, of the senior army staffs of the other countries involved. doesn't matter which side of the conflict they were on. Every one of them afterwards said, as soon as the Americans picked a side and showed up on the ground, it was the beginning of the end. And more than anything, <clears throat> it was, we had the most recently undeveloped society. So we were, we had the most people who were willing to go get dirty and go blow some stuff up. <laughs> and so the, the, you said the leader was a Mason. Blackjack yeah. was a Mason. Blackjack Pershing. Yep. John J. Pershing. He was, he was a Mason. And that's probably why when the division staffs started to show up that they were all Masons. And you said that wasn't a prerequisite, but it was definitely prolific. Oh yeah. I've heard that about like in France. We have some brothers here that are from uh, they're from France, and his his brother is still in France. <clears throat> and he said one of his reasons his dad didn't become a Mason was because of the requirement for senior management and government and other places like that that uh, you have to be a Mason to to advance. And so he kind of rebelled. His his dad kind of rebelled a little bit, but he and his brother are now both mm -hmm. active Masons. Yeah, there's there's definitely been some long term effect uh, from that, and it, and both um, from that period and into World War Two. And, and on World War Two, the issue became that the Nazi Party actually hunted Masons down because going back to Kaiser Wilhelm and World War One, they looked at the, what the Masons did with continuing relations with other countries as traitorous. And so Hitler's one of Hitler and and Himmler and Goering's first orders of business was to take out all of the Masonic lodges in Germany. 
Well, they didn't want to have any secret societies that could uprise against them too, right? Like, right. Yeah. <clears throat> Pass messages <laughs> under the desk and yeah. <laughs> Heavens. Unheard of. So you're down in Washington, JD. I'm, uh, I'm curious as to uh, whether or not you've, you guys have participated in joint celebrations, you know, Veterans Day and, and um, uh, uh, up here in, in, we call it Remembrance Day. Oh, yeah. Uh, you guys ever have those joint um, events for those things? Absolutely. Uh, we've, we've actually hosted a Canadian unit here in the Auburn Veterans Day Parade before. Uh, that'll be going on this Saturday. Uh, we've had several with the law enforcement exchange. Uh, some good friends of mine were shot in a coffee shop down here in Parkland, and an entire uh, Canadian department showed up. Uh, for that remembrance and a good friend of mine actually just retired uh, out of the u.s navy from a canadian position um, he was uh, the senior uh, staff submariner uh, on the west coast of canada for the last three years and so he was a, an exchange officer that he actually retired he had to come down here to uh bremerton to go through the retirement process for about 30 days wow that's interesting had you ever done any work with uh, Canadian forces while you're? Uh, yes. Yeah. So first Canadian division, I did the entire West coast air defense sector planning. And then in Afghanistan, um, two different Canadian SAS teams uh, worked for me. And then in Africa, mm -hmm. believe it or not, uh, some of the Canadians showed up uh, when I was on a French foreign legion base <laughs> I can't really tell you all about that um, other than, yes, there were some Canadians there in East Africa with me and they were not amused because it was hot. Uh huh. So Steve, I don't know if you know, do you know how many Masons in your lodge are, are military or veterans? Oh, I know in, our, in ours, there's quite a few. It's probably more than half. Well, I know that in the past there were, uh, from the artifacts in our library and whatnot that uh, at least a half a dozen in my lodge uh, were members of the forces. Um, now, unfortunately, um, they've all passed away and we have a pretty young lodge being that I'm now the old guard. Um, Funny then, how that happens, huh? Yeah, right. So uh, <laughs> at, at this point, the last, uh, last remaining member uh, who was, uh, you know, he was active in the RCMP, he was active in military, uh, and he retired from CSIS, uh, the last, uh, last job he had. And um, he unfortunately recently passed a couple months ago. We just had a, um, I actually just received his uh, past master's jewel from his family. Uh, and I think that's the last one that's, that's, uh, that was en enlisted anyways. Um, I'm sure there's a lot in St. George's because uh, St. George's Lodge here, um, a lot of the RCMP uh, joined St. George's Lodge. That was the you know one thing they had going on was a lot of cops were in there and a lot of military people were in there. So I'm quite certain there's a bunch in there because uh, they still got a bunch of their old guard. Huh. Matt, do you know if there's what kind of ratio you guys have in your lodge and, or even in the district now as deputy. I know even in our dis district down here, there's lots of military guys. 
Yeah, I would I would say it's probably not half, but it's it's yeah. certainly a goodly number. Um, just thinking of the guys who regularly show up of, of the whatever twenty twenty five guys we get in a meeting, I would say probably eight or ten of them are, are, are veterans. Yeah, and you guys are you guys are pretty close to Lewis McCord and stuff down there, right? So it's you get a little more proximity. I guess we've got Everett, but yeah, I think it's mostly we certainly don't have. Not that I know of any active guys, TD. I don't think we have any active guys, but we certainly have quite a few that are retired or just veterans. And, uh, but yeah, of course, as you get closer to the bases in general, there's probably going to be more active guys. I know that's a little bit one of the problems that lodges have is that that are close to bases. They'll, they'll get guys in, they'll give them degrees, and then they ship them off. and Or they move to another base or something. And so there's a lot of membership all over the world that from from close-knit bases that are close to lodges and it it's, can be difficult but that's the great thing about masonry is and i i've been really emphasizing that to a couple of guys that were bringing in on inquiries to our lodge that uh you know hey even though you live in a different part in a different city doesn't you don't live in auburn it's okay and you, if you think you're thinking about a couple of different lodges you can go once you're a mason doesn't matter which one you join ultimately <laughs> Just join one, and then you can go visit any lodge you want to. That's the really beautiful thing about masonry. Yeah, that's that's always been a, oh, sorry. Go ahead. That's, that's been a confusing thing for me, too. So a lot of people saying, well, you know, but our community and let's be local and all this. I thought that was the whole point of being a traveling man was that was why we did it in the first place was so we could go to other <laughs> places. I'm not going to quote anything, but come on, man. You know, so I, I've heard a couple of those sentiments and i just looked at the, the speaker and went you do remember all those words right anyway yeah for sure it's it's uh we, we have one guy in particular that's joining and uh, he checked out three lodges in the area very very thoroughly and we're very fortunate that he chose our lodge in auburn to join and uh, but again i just i emphasize to him more and more that once you're in, you you can, and some guys want to join and pay membership to the other lodges, and that's great. They can be a plural members if they want to, but I, I'm, I guess I'm a cheapskate. I just, you know, why pay dues more than one place unless you really have to? <laughs> well, we, dues is a whole other uh, issue there. <laughs> that was another show. Yeah, we, we can we do that one again if you want. I'll, I'll put a link somewhere maybe in here for that show. <laughs> I have more thoughts. <laughs> We just uh, had a re installation at Kootenay 15 in Revelstoke. And, um, of course, you know, they stand up and give a toast to the visitors at the banquet and, you know, then give a big plug for affiliation. And, you know, the few of us that hadn't affiliated there, one of them <laughs> piped up and says, you know, if the rest of us affiliate, you won't have any visitors. <laughs> Valid. I'm I don't mind affiliating to uh, like I'm a member of we call it Grand Mount Historic Lodges. Historic Lodge meet once a year. Affiliating there or maybe to a research lodge or something that's a different situation. But I feel I, when I was younger Mason, not younger but newer Mason, uh, I was I was was in awe of those guys. I was standing up and say, "Oh, I'm junior warden over here, and I'm senior deacon over here, and I'm this over here, and I'm I got you know, a member of 16 different lodges." And I always thought that was kind of cool. But what I've kind of found out in some cases is that they're they're joining those lodges to help them stand up, to help the lodge keep open, stay open. And, and possibly in some cases they're filling a chair that really should be done by a new guy that's coming in and give them a chance. And so I look at it as a little bit of a juxtaposition about being an affiliated Mason to another lodge and taking a station that maybe a new guy should have or should be trained up to take 
and also standing, helping to keep lodges open that maybe shouldn't be continuing. That's again, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> See, that's a show we should have too. <laughs> Artificially propping up things that maybe shouldn't stick around. Yes. We talked about mm -hmm. that on a show recently. I think it was in the Dues show, or I don't know, it was one of them. We talked so much uh, about uh, no, no, inspection. Inspection, that was the term where some, some jurisdictions have an inspection program where they go around and they verify that lodges can do the work. And uh, we don't have that in Washington. It's something I've thought about trying to encourage our Master Mason brethren to vote for, but we are, we are way off topic. Um, yes. From veterans in the military. <laughs> so if you want to talk about veterans in the military and, and guys who saw both sides of the, uh, the military side and the peace side, uh, George Marshall was a, a Mason, the author of the Marshall Plan and Nobel Peace Prize winner. So he, yeah. was, uh, he was also what Secretary of Defense. I think he might have been Secretary of State at some point. So he's a, a famous military guy who espoused many of the virtues of Masonry in, in very various ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the opportunities that, that you have in this uh, forum, J.D., is that this is um, going to be on podcast land in audio and on YouTube and video for years to come. And if there's a particular message that uh, you wanted to see got out there, whether it's um, uh, about Masons joining the military or vice versa, uh, the floor is yours for that, man. Okay. Well, so I have two things. Um... The first is, I am an author, I have written some novels, but those aside, uh, one of the things that I've done is after 30 years of writing essays and papers and position pieces, there were those few moments kind of far between where there was something that struck me that I wanted to capture how I felt about it, not just analyze it to death and where do we go from here and write an after action report that goes in a binder, gets put on a shelf and nobody ever reads it. So um, I wrote Congress, right? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> let's, let's not touch that. <clears throat> but I decided to write some poetry along the way. And one of the things that when I got to the point where I was going to publish it, well, the first part of it anyway, um, I wanted to be able to be carried and by a soldier in a foxhole or a Jeep or a, you know, cockpit, wherever. And so it is literally the size that you can put in a shirt pocket, back pocket of a pair of jeans, you know, a cargo pocket of a uniform, etc., And just captures from operational to uh, how people deal with PTSD, that kind of thing. And I've actually been in contact with uh, uh, some of the chaplain corps about doing another one. Um, as well and it's been a eye-opening experience for me especially living in the land of oh my goodness security clearances um, that the amount of people who don't want to talk about what they've been through and they know because they're right 90% of the time if they do they're gonna lose that clearance and I gotta get to do the job anymore um, and so it's a it's a tortuous path not a dangerous path but it is something that involves a lot of soul-searching about okay am I screwed up enough that I'm a danger to the mission and so I should pull myself off or am I just screwed up enough that I'm only gonna, you know, annoy my family. I mean, there's a, there's a fine line there somewhere. I don't know what it is yet cause I haven't found it. Um, but I'm working on it. That message to me, 
has rung true in, in every generation there was you know battle fatigue and then shell shock and then uh, PTSD and my guys would call it you ain't right in the head um, so that's if you want to go with the current generation version that's probably what it is um, and I don't think any of us are that are that continued to do it past one or two tours um, I think that message more than anything that that resonates with me is when we came from like environments what we found was those people who went home together supported each other if you look at every service organization within a community i don't care if it's the american legion the vfw brothers in arms i i actually ride motorcycles with the combat vets motorcycle association the masonic lodge the lions club the elks club the eagles club there are military members in every one of those i guarantee it number one it's a it's a life of service approach number two what goes into those is the continuation of community so when we signed up in mass from the civil war to world war ii units that were groups of people largely from the same communities went together when they came home they could be at the pub every single night and staring at each other and go, Oh, Bobby's coming off the rails. Somebody go grab him. You know, but when you go with what they went to in Vietnam, where you went for a one year tour or less and your number came up whenever, and you went to whatever unit, the, what was it back then? The punch cards in the sky decided to tell the machine to send you to when you went home, you didn't go to where that unit was from. You didn't go to where all those people came from the same hometown. And so you didn't have that same support group that was automatically there at the end of a conflict. We're still living that today. You know, the National Guard units are having much better success at dealing with these post-activity uh, social issues than the active duty members are because they go home together. You know, 150 infantry, 150 man infantry company goes from Kent, Washington, for example, and they come home and guess what? They all go back to Kent, Washington, and they can go stare at each other. And yeah, some people move, but not as much as we're on active duty. I could tell you that the first combat zone I went to, Panama, um, officially, there was not a single person from the same home state, much less the same hometown. You know, same thing when we went to Germany and Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia at that time, uh, working out of Berlin, Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Kuwait, and then the Balkans. Very, very rarely would I have somebody from my home state, much less anywhere near where I grew up. So I did. It does happen, though, and it's kind of weird. Uh, I'd been in the Army for 17 years, and I went to a staff here at uh, Fort Lewis, then it was still Fort Lewis. And every single staff officer in that operation shop, and there were nine of us, had gone to a different Washington State University. Wow. We were all from this state's colleges. And I've never seen that happen before or since. But that's, that's where we're missing the boat really I think with the sociological aspect of this is trying to get people to understand that community is important and that finding your way back into that community and finding a support group within that community is the most important thing okay my pitch is done
Sorry. And certainly that's where a Masonic Lodge uh, and Masons in general can help with that support group and to be those brothers that they, that connection they may have had not had. I mean, I know that's why everywhere in the, in the world, but certainly in the United States and in Washington, the membership grew exponentially after World War II. There was, you know, four times as many Masons as there are now back then. And uh, so that's definitely something that I've, I've thought about that. I, you know, I haven't had our, a meeting after the meeting about this, but I, that's certainly an area that, <laughs> of, uh, of oh, men no, no. that I want <laughs> our one o'clock in the morning meetings. Uh, there are also more veterans as a proportion of society as well. Exactly. It is going up. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, uh, injured veterans, you know, in the past, in the previous wars and the situations where they, they wouldn't make it out of theater uh, or they wouldn't survive. And so now there's a lot of injured veterans that are out there and, and not just physically injured, but also mentally injured. And, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I would recommend if a guy's listened to this or if they know, if a family member knows something, uh, if they're, if they're a veteran or they know veterans to encourage them to go visit their local Masonic lodge and, and make a connection, uh, with the brothers there. And, uh, there's certainly some veterans there or they know veterans that can help them. So this is a side note that you may want to cut out, but, um, you know, in World War One, one of the things that happened before we deployed a bunch of people, uh, there were some waivers given out and dispensations for younger soldiers who were going to deploy uh, overseas to become members in a day, receive all the degrees in a day. <clears throat> and the reason was, is because at the time you had to be a whole man to be initiated as a Mason. And so they had already seen a lot of the fathers, if you will, who were Masons, had seen some of the, the rich boys coming home that had legs blown off and arms blown off. And they wanted their sons to be able to be Masons. And they knew that if they were initiated before they went, even if they came home without an arm or a leg, they could still be a Mason. But if they weren't initiated before that, they could not. It was a very interesting uh, historical note for me. Yeah, I was I was reading about that, or I saw Matt. You just un unmuted there. So if you wanted to chat about, it, but that was I, I know each lodge can determine however they want to decide that. Right. Yeah, it's a pendulum that has swung both ways. The uh, there was a big relaxation in those rules uh, shortly after the Civil War too, when a lot of again the same story. A lot of guys were coming home uh, injured, and and a lot of Grand Lodges relaxed their their uh, restrictions following that. And then it, like I said, the pendulum swung back the other way eventually. To, Mm -hmm. I think our, our code is pretty generically specific <laughs> on that area that, you know, can they perform the signs and, and symbols more or less? And, and yeah, they can, can they materially participate in, I think is what yeah, it says. Yeah. Can they provide a reasonable level of authentic, you know, of identification, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we've had some guys that haven't been able to do some of those things uh, that we require and we just make accommodations for them, you know, if, uh, the, the hard part would be the situations where they've had brain injuries or something and they just can't, you know, they're, they're, they're a good guy, but they just can't, you know, they can't participate. So, well, yeah, this is so uh, starting to think about some of those guys. Uh, so I, I know you mentioned kind of briefly that uh, you were part of the combat veterans motorcycle club. We just had our recently an interview with our sons of Hiram riding club our Masonic riding club. How long have you been with the combat vets riding club? Uh, 10 years. Actually, it's longer than that, but I had a break. I, I joined once and then 
uh, was deployed for a while. And so I let my membership lapse for a couple of years. And then when I came home, uh, went back. So I think I went back in 2009. So I think it's, it's 10 years, probably a little over, a little over 10 years. Yeah. Are there quite a few Masons in that organization that you know? <clears throat> there are several, there's not like a preponderance or anything. Um, there's like, what's, what's ironic is that one of the members of my chapter is also being installed as master of his lodge at Alki on the same day at the same time. And we found out about six weeks ago, we were just at some random bar somewhere staring at each other. Every Thursday night, uh, we have a, what we call a weekly safety meeting. And it's not us checking whether we're safe. It's checking whether we're safe to be in society. Uh, but, you know, we, we stare at each other and go, hey, how you doing? And not everybody comes to every one of them. And we move them around uh, the area so that it's closer to some people than others. And when uh, he asked me, hey, you're coming to my installation? I said, when is it? He goes, December 7th at 6 p.m. I said, ha, huh, let me answer your question with a question. Are you coming to my installation? He goes, when is it? I said, December 7th at 6 p.m. He's like, uh. No. It was just ironic that we're, we're the only two in our group. We're probably two of the only five in Western Washington, and we're being installed as master of our lodges on the same day at the same hour. <laughs> great, great minds think alike. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I we, glad you couldn't do that by video conference. <laughs> right. We, we could do a joint live streaming show in, installation. That would be funny. <laughs> they did do a, we did a joint installation for Western Cascade and Crescent Lodge a couple of years ago. It was quite an interesting uh, conundrum. <laughs> There's a lot of guys. <laughs> <laughs> in the same building at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and physically in the same we literally right, installed no, yeah. both lodges at the same time oh and, my you know, do you do you yes yes do you do yes yes sounds like a mass wedding <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> exactly yeah we have just a few minutes left on this show but uh there's something that you go that's really cool as part of the combat vets that i really like uh the a ceremonial ride that you do for for certain uh brothers and brothers in arms i guess is really what i should know yep. brothers but uh, can you talk about that a little bit uh, we actually do three. So we have what we call an all Patriots ride uh, once a year. And we invite in all 50 states and in Korea and Germany, believe it or not, we invite all uh, military affiliated uh, groups to come. And we do uh, usually a between 50 to 250 mile ride. And that one's kind of cool. Uh, we also do another, we call it the silent ride for PTSD. And we'll go to a picturesque location as opposed to, you know, a Harley dealership. I don't ride a Harley, by the way, just saying. Um, but uh, a couple of years ago, we picked, there's a replica of Stonehenge down in uh, Goldendale, Washington, down on the Columbia River. And it is a truly silent ride. I mean, everybody starts in their own location, ends up there, uh, gets to the location. And then there is a memorial service for those we've lost. and then. It's generally, we talk about the, the suicide awareness a lot um, and gather people together. And then we go away in silence, same idea. Uh, so that's two. And then uh, we have at least one uh, poker run where each of our state meetings will do and our national meetings will do. Um, we were able to, last year we did a very cool uh scenario where the national was going to be held in Boise 
And so in Washington state, we held our state meeting in Spokane the weekend prior so that we could not come home and just go ride a bunch of fun motorcycle roads for a week and end up in Boise and then ride home. We ended up, uh, a couple of us were over 2000 miles by the time we were done. Wow. Well, we do also, as Steve mentioned, want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your, your, uh, to plug your authorship as well, your book. Uh, <laughs> can you give us the, the names of the books and are you doing any signings and or events like that that are coming up? Uh, so, okay. The, the world name is Meteri. The two book titles of the two novels that are out are Saving Ramos and Wings Tip the Scales. They both have the, the world name at the beginning of the title. It's all on Amazon for Kindle or for paperback. Um, normally, I've been doing two book signings a year. I was supposed to do one this fall, and I didn't. Um, so I've been doing them in March and, like, October. Uh, I want to do one before Christmas, but I've been having, I've been having some issues getting stuff done. Um, on time i'm trying to get the third novel out by the end of the year so uh things that uh, interrupt my writing like i don't know podcasts um get in the way i'm just kidding this has been a lot of fun <laughs> uh i think uh i am gonna try and do one more book signing before christmas so hopefully like the middle of december awesome well we really appreciate you taking the time today to uh, to come out and visit with us and talk about military and the veterans and and uh, and masonry, uh, but uh, the military in general. And again, thank you to all that have served, and thank you to the U.S. and Canadian forces, and all all those that are around the world, and uh, all the masons that are veterans again in military. Hey, Dave. Uh, yes, sir. Let me say one more thing. Uh, what's interesting to me about the novels is because of the low-level combat stuff. A lot of my readers that are adamant about, hey, when's the next book coming out? are combat vets because of the way I write combat. Uh-huh. But you Masons will be interested to, if you read the novels, every now and then you will find a little bit of a detail somewhere that you go, hey, hey. A little, little tidbit in there, huh? Yep, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, thanks, JD, for coming out. It was really great to, to talk hey, to you. Hey, thanks, thanks, Matt. Yeah, really appreciate you spending the time with us. No worries. Thanks, Steve. All right. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, we appreciate your time here on the Working Tools Podcast. Thank you.